is a Woodside Church podcast. Very, very happy to be meeting <laughs> and very, very happy to have Colin uh, preaching this morning. Uh, all of us, we know uh, Colin has been leading uh, part of our worship, but today he will bring us the word of God. So this is not for me. This was here, but I think it was intentional for you. <laughs> <laughs> Are you okay? <laughs> All right, let's just pray. Father God, we just want to pray that Colin will uh, deliver your word, Lord Father God, with special anointing. We pray the Lord Father God that you help us to learn from you this morning. Mm. Thank you for Colin and his life and all that you've done in his life, Lord Father God. And the word, Father, help us to receive the word and put the word in action as you speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> well, I, I'm glad you're relaxed, Martin. Are you all relaxed? Yeah. Hope so. I, I have to tell you, I am traumatized. <laughs> not because I've got to speak to you, uh, not because I've just been given this white rose, but because it turns out that my ears are completely the wrong shape for fitting one of these Madonna microphones. <laughs> If there was a Guinness Book of Records for how long it took to fit a microphone like this, then I think my name would be there. Um, I mean, it's not Robin's fault. He was, he was doing everything he could. I drew the line when he got the staple gun out. I was, no, no, no. Uh, and uh, I think uh, it nearly came out just then. So there, there may be some, uh, I don't know, wardrobe malfunction perhaps uh, on this, on this, uh, in which case Robin will leap to my aid. Anyway, um, I, I suspect a lot of you are used to Googling things. And um, if you should happen to Google, I don't know why you would, but uh, most popular songs played at funerals. Um, <laughs> sorry, I mean, you're meant to start lighthearted, am I right? Uh, any ideas what might, uh, not, not what you would choose, but you think would be like top of the list for popular songs? Uh, so, you got it. I think it's, there, there, there we go. Let's, if you go to the next slide, you'll see... Um, it does depend on the list. It's always going to be in the top five. It's often at the top. Yeah, I did it my way. Now, I don't know about you, but when my time has come and I'm facing the final curtain, there is no way I want to stand before God and say, Hiya, God, I, I did it my way. I mean, is, what's God going to say? What, you didn't think my way was good enough? I, I don't know. Um, uh, to me, it's absolutely crazy. Now, we're going through parts of the book of 1 Samuel, and much of that is looking at the life of uh, King David. Uh, King David is described as a, as a man after God's own heart. That doesn't mean he was perfect. Uh, he, didn't, he did plenty of things that weren't right, but his heart was to follow God. And in following his story, we can, I think, from his example, learn things that apply to us. And last week, Mohan uh, was talking about uh, David and Goliath. It was referenced earlier on. So just to very re- recap quickly, we know the story. David kills Goliath. Goliath was a Philistine. He was uh, taunting the Israelites, basically saying, come on, fight me. Send your champion to fight me. David comes, a young man, and uh, he kills the, the Philistine. Now, I wonder um, if you've heard of the proverb... Uh, no good deed ever goes unpunished. Now, <laughs> stop silence. No one's saying amen to that, which is good. It is not a biblical, it's not a biblical proverb. 
It sometimes attributed to Oscar Wilde, but I think incorrectly it goes back a long time. Um, and although it's very cynical, even so, you can probably identify with you do someone a good deed and you wish you hadn't. It backfires. It comes and bites you in, well, wherever. And um, now I was trying to think of examples of this and I thought of loads, which I can't say because I value my friendships and my close relationships. Um, so some hypothetical ones. Maybe you're a teacher, you do some maths tuition for a friend, their son is not good at maths, and you've given your time free to, to help them get through their GCSE, but they're lazy, they don't study, and they fail the exam, and he comes up, well, you didn't teach them well enough. Yeah, I used to be a teacher, you can see, I can, t- I can feel the pain of that. Um, <laughs> Or maybe you throw a birthday party, a surprise party for a friend, and you spend hours preparing it. You know what they like. You get the right cake and what have you. Um, and then they, at the surprise moment, they freak out, scream, storm out. They never speak to you again. I mean, you would think, why did I bother? Um, that, I think, was David's why did I bother moment. I mean, in a way, it was a good deed, which in many ways didn't go unpunished because Saul should have been grateful um, David did Saul a massive favour by defeating the enemy. And Saul was grateful. That was until a moment when he heard a group of ladies coming out singing. And let's see if I can find the bit here. Yes, so this is 1 Samuel 18, 6, 9, I think. Yes, so when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing. So they've come to meet the king, singing and dancing with joyful songs and timbrels and lyres. And as they danced, they sang. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm just going to take him out of the water. It went something like this. Saul, Saul has slain thousands. David, tens of thousands. Hail, David, hail. Uh, well, obviously, they were women, so it would have been, been higher than that. It would have been much, much nicer. Now, it reads on. Saul was angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from this time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. And that really was the start of David's problems. And there, you know, there came a pattern where Saul would have murderous thoughts towards David and seek to take his life. And uh, in the end, David had to flee, which is where we are in um, 1 Samuel chapter 24. I'm just going to briefly recap the uh, events in this chapter. And then Wendy, uh, I'm very grateful to you, is going to read the, the whole chapter out. So basically... David and a group of about 600 men is hiding uh, in a cave. And Saul is after him with a troop of about 3,000 men. Saul is serious. He's out to get David. 3,000 men. And, um, and uh, it turns out that Saul goes into the cave where David is hiding. Now, as, as I think Martin so eloquently put it a few weeks ago, Saul had to do what a man's got to do. And he went into the cave, it says in the Bible, to relieve himself. And whilst he's there, David's men say, look, Saul's here. This is what was prophesied, that the Lord has delivered your enemy into your hands. You can go and kill him. And David's response is, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. He knew that Saul, even though he was not a good king, 
he was anointed by God, and he didn't kill him. But what he did do is he went out, cut up a piece of his cloth, and then as Saul was leaving, uh, at a safe distance, David comes out, calls out to him and says, King Saul, why are you after me? Look, I'm no threat to you. See, I could have killed you. You were in the cave I was, and instead of killing you, I've cut off a piece of this cloth. And then at that moment, Saul regrets his actions, apologizes really, acknowledges that David is more righteous than he is, and says, look, you know, I won't do this again. Well, of course he does. Anyway, that's basically what's going to happen. Uh, Wendy, if you can uh, read it, and then anything that I <laughs> misquoted will be corrected, and any difficult words, Wendy will have to read them, and I won't have to. <laughs> Morning, everyone. Uh, 1 Samuel, chapter 24. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterwards, David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not follow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. Then David went out of the cave and called to Saul, my Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Paul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe but did not kill you. See, there is nothing in my hands to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, for my hands will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider his course and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from my, your hand. Sorry. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David? My son, and he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have have just now told me about the good you did to me. 
The Lord delivered you, it, me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him go away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treat me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Thank you, Wendy. Now, um, so unlike Frank Sinatra, who boldly wants to declare before the throne of God that he did it his way, David did it God's way and sought to do things God's way. And really that's what, that's the, the one thing that overarching how we look at David here is what is God's way of doing things. So I'm going to pick out three things from this packet, uh, passage um, where we can look at David's attitude. So one is um, we're going to compare Saul's regret for his actions, for his sins, and compare that with David's repentance. We're going to look at how David handled prophecy and look at David's attitude to authority, those in charge, those three things. Now, none of these is going to be in depth. Um, they're really just going to be like literally bullet points, uh, hopefully things to provoke you and maybe th- you know, themes that you know, greater, more in-depth teaching uh, can unravel from perhaps your own Bible study, maybe some future um, sermons here. Anyway, uh, going back to 1 Samuel 24, 16 to 19, um, when when David confronted Saul, uh, this is what Saul. This is what Saul said. He says, "Is that your voice, David, my son?" And he wept aloud. He was moved. "You are more righteous than I," he said. "You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy." Does he let him get away unarmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I mean, it's quite moving stuff. It's quite passionate. And and I've no doubt he regretted it. The trouble is, two chapters later, the same thing's more or less is happening exactly again. Not quite exactly, but there's another, another story where Saul is in David's vicinity and he's gone to sleep. His guards are being negligent. And there's even a spear by by his side. And again, he's urged, go and kill him. But he doesn't kill him. He takes the spear and I think a jug of water. And again, confronts Saul saying, look, I could have killed you. I'm not out to get you. And again, Saul regrets. And there are other instances too where um, Saul threw um, spears at David. Um, It was a pattern of David being angry, sorry, Saul being angry with David, uh, trying to kill him and regretting it. The trouble is it wasn't repentance. And we can often mistake regret for repentance. Now let's contrast this with David. Um, so David, uh, David's perhaps most recorded sin is with David and Bathsheba. I think we've got a slide of... I, show, I, know, I know there was a bit of an overlap with my last talk, if you notice this. Uh, but... Um, David's sin here is he commits adultery, he tries to cover it up with deceit, and he ends up, uh, by proxy, murdering Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. 
And I want to look at some parallels here between David's behavior and Saul's behavior. Um, We read that Saul, this is in 1 Samuel chapter 18. Saul said to David, here is my oldest daughter, Marab. I will give her to you as your wife if you prove yourself to be a warrior for me and fight the Lord's battle. Then it says, Saul thought, I must not lay a hand on him. Let the Philistines do that. Saul actually knew that David was also had an anointing from God and thought, I can't take him with my own hand. At least at that time, he believed that. Later on, he was prepared to do that. And that's really exactly what David did. David was loyal to Saul. Uriah was a loyal soldier to King David. And they both plotted to get rid of them by proxy in battle. David's plan succeeded. And actually, David showed no regret until he was confronted by his sin from a prophet Nathan. And at that point, he does repent. And we have the glorious Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Uh, and I recommend that if you want to come before God in repentance and you're not too sure of the words, use this psalm as a model. It's brilliant. I'm just going to read some extracts and draw out some points looking at the difference between David's repentance and Saul's regret. So Psalm 51 starts. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. It's it's not up there, but he goes on to say something like, Against you, God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You're right when you judge me. Verse 10. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to to me the joy of your salvation. Give me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors, transgressors your ways so sinners turn back to you. Saul felt sorry. He wept. He realized what he did was wrong, but it didn't go any further than that. Now David acknowledges that his sin is against God. He, he says in that psalm, I've sinned against you. You were right uh, when you judge. I think a few weeks ago, David, at the um, Strongholds Conference, you talked about renouncing sin, which if I, if I got the gist of that correctly, it's, it's, it's knowing, understanding that this sin is an offense to God. It's not just something that hurts other people. It does, but it is an offense to God, and we will have nothing to do with it. We acknowledge that God cannot tolerate sin. David understood that. And then he realizes that God would be right to judge him and turn his back on David, remove his Holy Spirit. David says, no, I need you. I need your Holy Spirit. Don't desert me. Saul, I think, was always trusting in himself and not trusting in God. Now, he asks God to keep him steadfast. In other words, to keep him committed to doing the right thing, to sustain a willing spirit. He's determined to not carry on with the sin. And he knows he needs help for this. And he knows he needs to do that. And then I think this is most telling. If I perhaps read the last bit again. Um, Then I will teach transgressors your ways so sinners turn back to you. He is committing to serving God. He's not just turning his back on sin. He's turning his face to God and believing that God 
has a mission for him to do. And that mission involves declaring God's goodness and sinners turning back to God. Now, when we are regretting our sin, and I'm speaking from personal experience, this is why I'm saying this. I'm not standing here saying, I am the model of knowing how to repent. Um, I understand regret all too well. Regret saps your strength. It makes you feel that you're a failure, uh, that you can't do the right thing, that God has turned his back on you. And even if you don't want to carry on doing the wrong thing, you think, well, I'm going to because I'm like that. It gives you no hope. Repentance acknowledges God's forgiveness. And it, it acknowledges our need for God to be with us and to strengthen us. But it also believes that God still has a plan for us. He will use us despite our weaknesses. And that's such a big difference. And it's such an encouragement. And, um, and I do think that there are people here this morning who may be thinking, I've been regretting not repenting. And if you're feeling that, great. Because God is encouraging you that he has a work for you to do. And I want to come back to that before we finish today. So <clears throat> David models repentance. And uh, I, I recommend that you all go and read Psalm, 100, that's Psalm 51. There is no Psalm 151. Psalm 51. <laughs> don't, don't go searching for Psalm 151. You won't find it. Anyway, uh, now, David's handling of prophecy. Now, I think this is really interesting. You see that, so David's men say uh, to him when Saul arrives, this is the moment that was foretold. God said he would deliver uh, his enemy to you, into your hands. Go and kill him. Now, th- that prophecy is not recorded anywhere else. So you know, I think scholars wonder, you know, was there ever such a prophecy? Did his men make it up? Um, David doesn't challenge the prophecy in that text anyway, so I, I don't think it existed. So uh, was it a false prophecy? Was it simply wrong? Or where I think I land, it was probably a genuine prophecy, but they misapplied it. But in any case, David pretty much ignored it. Uh, Well, he ignored his counsel from his men saying, look, this is a prophetic word. Go and kill the king. Go and kill King Saul. And uh, the reason he ignored it is because he understood God's heart. He's a man after God's heart. Now, however bad a king Saul was, he was anointed by God. And David's reasoning is, if God anoints someone to lead, it is not my place to decide when enough is enough. That's God's choice and God's alone. He's driven by his understanding of God's character. And if a prophetic word goes against that, um, he's not going to be swayed. He's not going to say, oh, actually, you know, maybe you know, this prophetic word is telling me that I should do what I wasn't sure about. And, um, and I think we need to, to learn lessons from this. So I want to look at some of the New Testament passages on prophecy. Now, let me be clear. We are a church that believes that God speaks today. And we encourage people to prophesy and to speak God to use us in prophecy. Uh, but there are two dangers with teaching, uh, teaching prophecy. One is to believe that uh, since the Bible is now complete, there is no more need for prophetic words and uh, that they have ceased. The other error is to think that prophecy after the Bible has the same weight as prophetic words that are in the Bible and that the two should, two should be treated equally. No, okay. Let's look at some verses. Um, so, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 to 3. We are to desire prophecy. This is, 
the Apostle Paul speaking, follow the way of love, eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Now, I know those three words are interesting. That prophecy there is for strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Um, not for telling you to go and kill people, for sure. Um, now, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I, you know, I, I, know I can't pronounce the Greek word. But the word that's used there for encouraging has shades of meaning, as is often the, the, the point. Uh, and it can mean to exhort, even to persuade. So I think there's a sense that prophecy can be used to, to, to suggest a certain course of action. And I think that's perfectly possible. Um, let's look in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 22. We prophesy in part. Um, again, Paul writes, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstance, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Other translations say do not despise prophecy. But test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. And then 1 Corinthians 13. We know in part and we prophesy in part. Um, it's quite clear, I think, from Paul's teaching that we are to receive prophecy, but we are not to elevate it to the point of just following it blindly. It has to be tested. And um, so how do you test prophecy? Now, again, this could be a serious sermon, but basically uh, you test it with Scripture. This is 2 Timothy chapter 3 from verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know from those you've heard it. So this is teaching in this context from apostles, people who have spent their life with Jesus or the apostle Paul um, who had a supernatural encounter with Jesus. They imparted their teaching. So you become convinced of what you know from those whom you learnt it. And from infancy, you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Very interesting, those holy scriptures would be the Old Testament which are teaching them faith in Christ Jesus, because the Old Testament is about Jesus Christ. All scripture is God-breathed, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Look, put simply, prophecy and scripture are not equal. Scripture tests prophecy. Um, if you hear a prophetic word, and you think, hang on a minute, the Bible does not say that. Um, at the very least, you check it out. Make sure that you've mis, you know, not misunderstood the prophecy. But if it's saying something different, God will not contradict himself. And you're not going to do it the other way around. You're not going to have a prophecy. Um, sorry, you're not going to look at a scriptural verse and say, well, actually, this prophecy uh, seems to be saying something different. Maybe this Bible verse is wrong. It doesn't work that way. Um, and I want to say something here which I think is important in this day and age. Um, prophecy cannot be used to teach doctrine, a new revealed doctrine. Now, this is not something that's going to happen here. I'm confident in our leaders here that they're not going to be using prophecy to bring in new doctrine. But we live in a global age. We live in an information age. You will be looking at things on the internet and I was going to say some of you are still reading books, but I'm not going to say that because that's so wrong. <laughs> some of you are gloriously reading books, of course. Uh, amen to that. Um, 
But wherever you're getting information from, um, there, there, are, there are teachers, there are churches, and these, there may even be churches which are teaching a good, sound gospel message, but having prophetic revelations, secret knowledge, things that God's revealed to them through prophecy, which for the last 2,000 years the church has known nothing about, run a mile from that sort of teaching. I'm going to give you an example of a, of a type of teaching, um, which I don't want to encourage you to go looking for it. But, so there is a teaching that, you know, as Christians, our words have creative power because we're made in the image of God and God's word, God spoke and it happened. And so there is a teaching that basically if you believe, if you use the right words, your words can actually change events because your words have power. Now that's not a scriptural teaching. Um, there's scriptural teaching about you know, words can do damage. You know, like, like a lot of misconceptions, there's some truth in it, but the idea that we have the same creative ability with our words as God has is wrong. So if you come across biblical teachers, or apparently biblical teachers, using prophecy to uh, reveal new, hitherto known doctrines, no, scripture is sufficient for our doctrine, and it's so important we grasp that. Uh, now, the next thing, um, I don't want to be misunderstood on this, but uh, not every spiritual thought that comes into our heads is going to be prophetic. Um, now, Jesus said, um, my sheep hear my voice and I know them, they follow me. And I've got a sort of picture there. I'm a Anyone recognize that album cover? <laughs> You're old. <laughs> so, okay. Um, that's not Jesus, that's Keith Green. Um, that is a sheep. Now, I, I'm a, I want to be careful using this passage because I think when Jesus said this, there's lots of layers of meaning here. I think part of it is to do with the mystery of election and what have you, which I'm not getting into. But I think it can be very simplistically used in this sort of line and even taught. Look, I'm a Christian. I know Jesus. I know his voice. So if a thought pops into my head, uh, it's Jesus. Now, thoughts can pop into our head, and it absolutely can be Jesus, and it can be prophetic, but not every thought. Let me give the example of Peter. I don't have the verses up here, but Peter, there's a moment where Peter says to Jesus, Jesus says, who do you think I am? Peter says, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, fantastic, well done. That's not been revealed to you by man. That's been revealed to you by the Holy Spirit, or something like that. I'm sure I'm badly misquoting that. But basically, Peter had... Uh, Prophetic revelation about Jesus uh, being the Christ, the Messiah. A few verses later, when Jesus is talking about his death and being taken away and died, Peter says, no, that will never happen. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Here's Peter, someone who spent three years with Jesus, soaking up his teaching, having a moment of divine revelation. You are the Christ. And seconds later, you're not going to die, Jesus. You're the Christ. Not every thought that comes into your head is going to be prophetic. Um, now, I'm not an expert on sheep, but I'm an expert on cats. And I know this is sneaky. So there's a picture of my cats there, I think. Yeah. Okay. Now, I know I used my cats last time, so forgive me. Different illustration. Yeah, look, my, my cats hear my voice and they follow me sometimes. They are cats after all. But they really do. Now, look, when I go outside, if I whistle and they're in earshot, they will come because they know I'm going to give them some food. I've trained them. 
I'm quite sure if you stood outside and whistled for my cats, they'd ignore you. No one else is going to whistle, and they will respond. And maybe, a, maybe this is a silly illustration, but anyway, it's, it's a true life story. I used to live within walking distance of, of the vets, and I, I wouldn't normally walk the cat to the vet, but I think it was rush hour, and I reasoned it was quicker to walk than be stuck in traffic. So I'm walking back with the cat in the carrier. It wasn't that far. And now, my carrier was missing a few of the pegs that sort of joined the top and the bottom bit. Now, the pegs that were on there were positioned in sensible places, but one of them was loose, I didn't realise. So as I'm walking back, the bottom comes away from the top, and Shandy, the one on our right there, comes out and starts to run away. And I'm thinking, how am I going to tell my wife that I've lost the cat? (laughs) Anyway, I call him by name, and I think I probably whistled, and he, he sort of stops. I think he looks at the road, and he's probably thinking, don't recognise that. He looks at me, and I'm sure he's thinking his cat way. Well, I know him, and he comes back to me, and he willingly goes back in his uh, basket or carrier that I secure and take him home. Now, look, it's, it's a bit silly, but my point is this. I think when we say, uh, Jesus' sheep hear his voice... You, uh, you know his voice. You know his voice if you know Jesus, basically. Yeah. Now, my cats know my voice because they know me. They have learned that when I whistle, uh, I'm <laughs> going to give them food. There have been occasions when I've just been like whistling a tune. I know I did it my way or something like that. <laughs> and, uh, and then the cats suddenly appear, and I think, oh, I've got to give them something now because otherwise they'll never trust me again. Um, But serious point. So if you've got things coming in your head, don't think like this. Don't think, well, I'm a Christian. I know Jesus. That's a holy thought. That must be Jesus. Think like this. Actually, yeah, um, I'm being reminded that uh, God has massive compassion for me. That sounds like something that Jesus would say. But if you've got a thought in your head, which may sort of be spiritual, but is a little bit off, maybe think, hmm, is that really something Jesus would say? So we, we need to be wise. If we're going to do things God's ways, we need to seek wisdom. Um, I know I'm only scratching the surface on this, but one other thing. What about prophecies that like, are giving you direction in the, in the future? Because a number of you will have testimonies where a prophetic word has led you to make even a life-changing decision. Now, I, I can't really think of an example in my life about that. I, I, I do believe God has led me in other ways. But um, I was speaking to Luke, so I've got a picture of Luke here coming up, I think. Now, doesn't he scrub up well? Now, Luke was sort of mentoring me through the notes for this talk, and, but he's on holiday at the moment, so he wasn't able to sort of stop me using that picture. But why would he? Isn't, isn't he handsome? He's, anyway, so Luke was telling me um, how use of prophecy uh, was helpful for him. Now, this is in the context of Luke already being led to take on a particular turn in direction in his life. And he has a picture of Jesus saying, turn round, look up at the mountain, go to the land and take it. It was lush green pastures on the mountain. Okay. Now, that's in the context of Luke thinking about stepping out on a venture. He has that. But he's not sure. Um, then a prophecy at church comes that says, turn around, look at the mountain, and the word then said, spoke of finding lots of gold on top of the mountain. Now, these things where you have a prophetic word and someone else from 
who knows nothing of that, brings a very similar word. Those are things where you can think, oh, maybe God is speaking to me. And if you're in that situation, I would encourage you to talk to trusted uh, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ or you know, church leaders, people that you respect, and talk these things through. Because sometimes getting the prophecy is one thing, um, but the application is wrong. Going back to David in the cave, the prophecy actually said that the Lord has delivered Saul into your hands, do as you wish. And that's actually exactly what David did. He wished to not kill him. The application, go and kill him, was completely off. So if you've got confirmation from more than one source, uh, then I think you want to be listening and seeking guidance from others. Okay, um, time is almost gone, so I'm going to very, very quickly wrap up. The, the third point maybe is the one on authority. Um, so I'm just going to say this very quickly. Um, Scripture exhorts us to obey those in authority, whether they are, uh, that's not just Christian leaders, but world leaders too. We'll just look at a few verses and I'll quickly sum up, but I'm not going to develop this. Um, uh, Okay, Hebrews 13. Obey your leaders, submit them. They are keeping watch over your souls as those who are having to give an account. This is Christian leaders. Uh, Earlier on, it says, keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds glorify God. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor or as the supreme ruler or governors sent by him. It's the will of God that you do this. Now, I've paraphrased that. It, it's perplexing for us in this day and age to maybe think that, why should we obey leaders who are sometimes quite embarrassing? But Saul was a bad king. When these words were written, um, there was an occupying force. Leaders were not brilliantly good all the time, but they were keeping law and order. Law and order. So what I would say this, David knew that God's plan was perfect. He trusted his sovereignty. He knew that even though Saul was a bad leader, um, it wasn't his place to decide when to take his life. That was God's choice. Um, We actually have the luxury of living in a democracy. I do just want to say this. Uh, We have the right to criticize politicians and what have you. And that's not illegal. But if you do it, and if you don't do it in the way the world does it. So don't go online and slag off politicians, call them liars, call them crooks, even if you think they aren't always honest. Um, Criticise policies, not people. And I think this, this, I think, is just a common sense thing. If you're in a position, if you, particularly if you're politically motivated strongly, if your party that you support can do no wrong, and the parties that you don't support can do no right, you have a problem. You really have. And uh, if you're really seeking God's view on things, you will see that whatever politicians and whatever party, they will be a mixture of good and bad. And if you're seeking God's heart, you'll be able to discern what's good and what's bad. And don't share gossip um, online. So if you, again, if you don't like a particular politician and you read a scandalous story about them and you think, click the share button, 
That's a worldly thing to do. Um, uh, if, you, if you feel it needs to be shared, at least check out the facts. And then if you think it's an important issue and you know it to be true, then maybe you, you enter into that. Now, that's another topic. Just summing up, though, David's heart was to serve God, uh, do it his way, and to understand his will. And our heart should be the same. Um, I want to go back to repentance and regret, because I think there will be people here who are thinking, do you know what, I've been not dealing with sin in my life with true repentance. I've only regretted it, and it sapped me of my strength. And I just want to give a moment for people to not be condemned, but to be encouraged that uh, God would have you truly repent, confess to him, call on him for strength, for his Holy Spirit, and believe in him commissioning you to do his work. Will you ever sin again? Yes, I'm sure. But learn repentance. I'd like us all to stand, please. And I'm not going to say, put your hand up if that's you. But let's stand in solidarity. I will lead us in a prayer. And if this has touched you, I urge you to say amen to that. And then if anyone else wants to come up for further prayer, I know there will be people here who will be very happy to pray with you. Father God, I want to thank you for Psalm 51. How David records for us his repentant prayer. And I just want to pray for myself and for all of us here and for anyone in particular who has struggled with uh, an issue in their life which they know is wrong and they do regret it. They may have wept, but they haven't really repented. And I just pray, God, send your Holy Spirit now to convict and encourage. And I pray, Lord, do not depart from us Strengthen us, grant us a willing spirit to sustain us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord God, I pray that you will teach us the true meaning of repentance. And Lord, teach us to turn our face from sin and our face to you. Lord, show us, each one of us, what it is that you would have us do. Our sin has not disqualified us. It actually qualifies us to help turn sinners back to you because we're all sinners who've been turned back to you and we want to do that for others. Lord God, help us, we pray. Help us all. And may we be a people who are not like the world. Teach us to stand out, to be different, to be bold, to do things your way and not to feel that we have to copy the world and do things their way. And Lord, Let us never stand before you and boldly say, I did it my way. Lord, thank you. Your way is so much better. Amen. You have been listening to a Woodside Church podcast. For more information, visit woodsidechurch.com.